But we've been talking about the parables of Christ. And while we've not gone through all of them, most of them, and today is our final one, parables with power. Parables are stories. They're earthly stories. They're human stories. They're stories that connect people to spiritual truths. If you want to influence and if you want to teach and you want to inspire, you have to be able to connect people with those truths. We have covered a wide spectrum during these months. We began with a seed. That's appropriate. We began with the sower, sowing seeds. And the caution that the Savior gave us was to be careful because uh, there are seeds. Some are wheat and some are weeds, sadly. They grow up looking an awful lot like each other, but in the harvest they're found out. We found out about lost things, the lost pearl, the lost coin, the sons and the sheep. We've covered uh, about uh, personal finances and prayer, and we've talked about uh, so many wonderful truths in the Christian life. But today, our final story is perhaps the most dramatic of all. And it is certainly the most ominous, because as we come to the end of the verses, you're going to see this uh, incredible end of the matter. It begins with a 2,000-year-old context of a royal wedding feast. And though uh, we're speaking about 2,000 years ago, it has tremendous influence and insight for us today in our community, in our city and in our church, because many today are like those at the wedding feast. Some are indifferent. Some are just downright antagonistic. We have wedding crashers, as we'll see in this story here, people who imagine that somehow they're just going to make it into that royal wedding in heaven someday without getting the right garment. You know, much is made today about wardrobe malfunctions. You see it almost on every Uh, page uh, every week. Well, you talk about the most serious wardrobe malfunction of all. That's the, in this story, we're going to talk about someone who puts on a robe of self-righteousness, imagining that they're going to go to the greatest feast of all, the feast in heaven. Tragically, they're in for a big surprise. And so that's the story today. Uh, Let's uh, bow our heads and ask God's uh, wisdom as we finish off and so that we might finish strong. Lord, I just love to teach the Gospels, and uh, I've so enjoyed, Lord, just my personal study, just uh, going through these parables again as I have so many times over the years. Lord, thank you for all the fresh insights. God, your Word is just uh, inexhaustible in its depth and in its breadth. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for these saints of God who've joined us uh, on this journey. Now, God, today, would you help us to finish strong, and Lord, I pray that for those who need a warning, they will get it. For those, Lord, who need a, just a, a blessing, give them that blessing. And I pray that all of us, Lord, might be taught your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's go to the book of Matthew, please, if you would. The book of Matthew, chapter 22. Let's give the setting here, the context. Jesus is in the last week of his earthly life. Now, when we say the last week of his life, you understand, of course, that Jesus uh, is eternal. 
But uh, he came and took on the form of a human. And so we're talking about, uh, uh, about the time when he's approximately 33 years old. He has been proclaiming himself for the last few years as Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. Many people couldn't wrap their heads around that. Others were saying, he's no Messiah like I know a Messiah. They thought that the Messiah was going to usher in a new era for the Jewish nation, and it would be the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Nearly all the leaders rejected him, both political and religious, and had become extremely hostile. And they had succeeded in turning the average person, for the most part, against him. He is only ours. When he tells this parable, he is only ours from the most brutal execution, a Roman crucifixion that's ever been known to man. Now calmly and yet passionately, he warns. And he, uh, of all things, he's going to spend his final earthly words by telling a story. All oh, the power of a good story is seen, certainly. And we see a royal wedding in five different scenes. Let's go through these verses. In fact, let's read uh, these first ones together out loud. Uh, if you don't have uh, in front of you, you can look on the PowerPoint there. But uh, we use uh, the King James Version publicly from the pulpit here. Let's read it together. Ready, begin. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. We're going to stop right there. Notice the first little phrase, Jesus answered. You'd say, well, I don't even read the question. Well, that's the way it works with Jesus. He is the answer, <laughs> and He's the real answer to every question that's ever asked. And so He answered in the fact that He gave the truth. Jesus truly is the answer. And so here He's going to tell a story. Now, every good teacher starts with something the person is familiar with. If you're teaching someone to cook, or if you're teaching someone a sport, or like this week, my wife was trying to explain to me the beautiful wedding uh, dress that uh, our granddaughter, Celeste, purchased. And uh, she said it had this on it and this on it. She had these terms I'd never heard of in my life. I said, what is that? I, and she said, well, it's this. I said, what's that? She said, well, it's this. I said, what's that? And uh, finally, she said, it's, uh, it's not fluffy. It's like this. It's satiny, I think she said. And I said, oh, okay, why didn't you say so at the beginning? And, uh, but, you know, I have no idea what ladies' dresses. I have no idea the name. They, I mean, they have hundreds of names for the different things in ladies' dresses. And, but, um, uh, and, but she had to start with something I was familiar with. It's smooth. <laughs> it's satiny. Oh, okay, I got that. She was start with something familiar and then explaining something more complicated. Jesus was a master at clearly articulating the most complicated truth. Look at verse number two. What's the complicated truth? The kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus answers, I know you all are thinking that, I, that the real Messiah is going to bring in a kingdom. 
But I am here to announce that the real kingdom that Israel should be concerned about is the kingdom of heaven. You'd say, Pastor, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, theologically speaking, it is the sphere of God's rule. That's a good thing to write down, a good thing to remember. Simply the sphere of God's rule. It's all the places that God has dominion. You'd say, where is all the places that God has dominion? Everywhere. (laughs) God has dominion everywhere, doesn't He? The kingdom of heaven really should be in our marriage. It should be in our home. Our home should be a home where God has rule. Our finances should be ruled by Jesus. Our health, our words, our job, really everything is to be under the kingdom of heaven. You'd say, well, is God talking about heaven? It says the kingdom of heaven. So is God talking about a future heaven? Well, He is. That certainly is included in the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven really is just the kingdom, is another word for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. It was at the time of Christ, and it still is. You and I answer to a different law. Several years back, I was, uh, I was on jury duty, or at, uh, potentially on jury duty. and um, For some reason, I was up there. I was the number one juror in that box or the number one selection. And then I was the number one person they went after. And they spent like an hour questioning me, I remember. And uh, back and forth, uh, the prosecutor and then the defendant uh, attorney, and oh, back and forth. It was just amazing. But uh, when I, uh, and everything was going good, the prosecutor really liked me. I think he thought I was going to be conservative. And until I said something like, I answer to God's law. He said, what? You're telling us that you're not going to follow the law of the land? I said, no, I didn't say that. I'm just saying my primary responsibility is to the kingdom of God. There are a different set of laws. And that's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when this verse says the kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about just a future heaven. We're talking about a kingdom that's now. And that king is none other than King Jesus He's the king. Jesus is my king. As I was studying that this week, I was reminded of that amazing sermon. Dr. S.M. Lockridge. Dr. Lockridge was a wonderful African-American pastor down in San Diego in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Pastored the Calvary Baptist Church. S.M. Lockridge. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. That was his name. And he preached a sermon. Jesus is my king. And uh, I found a little three-minute clip. You're about to get blessed. If you can roll that. Uh, listen to Brother Lockridge. Jesus my is my king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder do you know him. <laughs> My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever 
across the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. Actually, uh, that's actually an hour-long sermon. You can get it on the YouTube there, but that's just three minutes out of it. That's, I was uh, listening to that for a few moments last night. I started shouting. I, I, could, I could just see Brother Eugene Hayden running around the building. That's my king! <laughs> and it is my king. The Bible says he was a certain king in this verse. And this king made a marriage. The Greek word for marriage is gamos. Interesting word and a well-known word to us. Actually, it's the same word that we get monogamous from, meaning one marriage. And that was God's plan, God's ideal, one man, one woman, one lifetime. The word actually means wedding feast, gamos, monogamous, uh, one wedding, one feast. 2,000 years ago, the word wedding and the word feast were really inseparable, especially in royal circles. Back then, the average wedding would last seven days long. People would come, they would hang out, and they would be fed, they'd be cared for, and actually it was just one feast after another. In fact, in this passage, the word for uh, wedding 
is both used in the singular and also in the plural. If you'll read, the, you can go to your Strong's Concordance and find that out. And so really it's meaning feasting or feast. And so they would feast one day and come back together, feast the next day. The whole point being, folks, this was just an amazing, amazing royal wedding. Can you imagine what it must have been like in those days for one of those villages to have a king have a royal wedding there? Just a few, uh, about a year ago, uh, Harry and Meghan uh, got in front of millions of people and tied the knot there at uh, St. George's at Windsor Castle. And Meghan uh, was uh, just a normal gal from America, movie star, but basically just a, a, a commoner, wore a diamond tiara from uh, Queen Mary's uh, heritage. Uh, it is estimated that 30 million Americans alone watched them, millions others around the world. And can you imagine what it would have been like back then? Like now, if someone, if I had gotten an invitation in the mail that said, Prince Harry and Meghan would like you to come to their wedding. Really? Wow. What an amazing thing to get a wedding invitation. Notice what it says in verse number three. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. You'd say that were bidden. Yeah, they'd already been asked. Now they're calling them to come. You'd see the Middle Eastern way was that since they didn't have watches, they didn't have little you know, sundials uh, on their wrist there. They uh, didn't know exactly what time it was, and they couldn't say, well, you know, we want you to be at our house at 10 o'clock on Thursday. They might not know Thursday, but 10 o'clock was a little more challenging, and so what they would say was, when it was time, we will let you know. Now, they had already been bidden. That means they had already been notified, and they had already accepted the invitation to the royal wedding, and now they are, the, royal, the king sends out his servant, I want you to go out to those that have been bidden, those that have already accepted, and I want you to tell them it is time for the wedding, time for the feast to begin. And so we have an invitation. Then we have number two, the second scene, the rejection, 3b through verse 6, starting in verse 3, and they would not come. Now, when Jesus was telling the story, I'm sure he was just, we don't have all the words that he said. Much of what Scripture says is just the highlights, kind of a condensed version. So Jesus may have been just really piling on all the details about this story. And then when he came to this part, but they would not come. There must have been a gasp across the audience. What? Being invited to Harry and Megan's wedding and not going? I mean, and we're not talking about just one day of feasting. We're talking about day after day. It was unthinkable. And so uh, just to imagine them not coming. Now, there's a couple reasons why it's unthinkable. First of all, to disrespect a king is not a good idea. And it's especially not a good idea to respect a Middle Eastern king 2,000 years ago. That was uh, probably uh, tantamount to losing your life. Second of all, why would they want to? Because we're talking about the greatest food you can imagine. We're talking about a five-star resort on steroids. I mean, this was the food you never even could imagine. So why would they possibly say no? 
Well, the king's response. Ah, what a gracious king we have. Verse 4, again, he sent forth other servants, saying, tell them which are bidden. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time. Maybe you're busy, but behold, I have prepared my dinner. Come on, my oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Now, when Pauline makes dinner, uh, she, we usually have dinner around 5 o'clock. And uh, she that's almost always sticks to that or earlier. And then when she's ready, she said, dinner's ready, and we've got to be there. It's the right thing because a lot of that dinner is time sensitive. I mean, uh, you don't want to eat a cold uh, spinach, you know, or something like that. I can barely take hot spinach, but cold spinach, oh, my goodness. And so she said, it's ready, time to eat. And I mean, we got minutes if you want the best possible meal. She's worked hard, and she uh, expects us to respect that. And so the king said, time to come under the marriage. Now, the word dinner here is an interesting thought. It is not the word where we would use dinner. Now, when we say the word dinner, what time of the day do we think of? Evening, right? That's what most of us think. Well, actually, the word dinner here is actually two uh, Greek words used for dinner uh, in the New Testament. One it means a midday meal, and the other means an evening meal. This particular word here is for the midday meal. Uh, back uh, years ago, I remember going to someone's house, and they said, um, why don't you come on over for Sunday dinner? I said, you know what? I have church on Sunday night. They said, no, it's after Sunday morning. I said, dinner? After the Sunday morning service? They said, yeah, Sunday dinner. I said, oh, okay. So years ago, I found out that on Sunday, the lunch meal is called dinner, and then you have supper later, see? And so I get it. So that's what they're saying here. This is dinner. It was about a midday meal. Now, the reason I even bring that up is because these people couldn't say, oh, you know what? It's too late. I can't come over there. Or, you know, I don't go out at nighttime. No, this was a midday meal. There's no reason why you certainly couldn't come over. Now, the rejection, it takes two forms. Number one, we see the unconcern. Verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm. Oh, that's important. You've got to go to your farm. Another to his merchandise. They made light of it. That means they were indifferent. That means they were apathetic. They just simply had no interest. They were unconcerned. And then it says they went their ways. They went their ways. Emphasis on there. They didn't care about the king. They didn't care about that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Their ways were more important than his feast. Now, it may seem a little far-fetched here, but what was so important about their ways? Well, the Bible clears it up. One had a farm. That means he had a job. They probably lived there at the farm, so one had to do something at the house. Maybe uh, they didn't need to do something for their work, and so not especially bad things in and of themselves, but it was their ways. They didn't have time for a feast in the middle of the day. They needed to go to the farm. They need to take care of some business. Then it says uh, merchandise. Actually, that's the Greek word for emporium. So there were people that needed to sell some things. They may have sold food or clothes or housewares, or they could have been selling things as simple as little souvenirs especially a lot of religious souvenirs during that time. And so there they were, 
They had very important things to do. They had to sell their little souvenirs. They had to sell their housewares. They had to go to the farm. Unconcerned. The unconcerned. The second form is the unfriendly, just downright mean and rude. Verse 6, and the remnant, meaning just a small group, took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. That's just a King James word for saying he killed them. They killed them. Now, I've had some people be mean to me, but thank God I've never had anybody try to kill me. But uh, here, the ones that came out with the message, kill the messenger. Kill the messenger. We don't, look, we already said no. Don't come keep bugging us. And uh, the king, I mean, all the king wanted to do was to bless them, give them a feast, and to give them everything they could ever imagine. And they were unconcerned, and then they were unfriendly. They were a uh, people who did not care to be reminded about their feast. Now, uh, theologically and biblically speaking, let's think for a second. Who would be a people who have been already bidden, who have been called? Who would be a called people who had already received a special calling from the king? And we know who that is. We know that is the nation of Israel. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the Jews. And God said, I will give you a land, I will give you a seed, and I will give you a blessing. And the Abrahamic covenant was founded uh, on, it was the founding document for the nation of Jews. And so really, uh, biblically speaking, the primary interpretation here is that God is saying, I called already to the Jewish people. And now Jesus came. 2,000 3,000, 4,000, or whatever years later since Abraham, and now here he is. Others have come, and they have uh, brutally treated them. Most recently, they had just killed John the Baptist, and so he was one of those servants that they killed. The wedding scene, first of all, the invitation, number two, the rejection, and number three, the destruction, verses seven and eight. Well, now the king was very excited about sharing his royal feast with everybody, he had made great uh, preparation. He had so much he wanted to give everybody, but his patience has a limit. Verse 7, but when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. That just means he was very angry, ticked off, we might say. God was mad, really is what it's referring to. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Here we see the biblical reality, and really uh, uh, the uh, God giving his support to legitimacy of capital punishment after, of course, due process. And, you know, interesting thing about capital punishment, it says they destroyed the murderers. And that's, uh, most people reading that would say that's very just, that's the right thing to do. And it's always been a part of civilized society. It helps civilized society until recently. Now we have a world where uh, they have uh, taken over and they, more and more now, people are feeling like that, uh, you know, civilized people don't believe in capital punishment. It's a strange thing, however, how that they care more for the life of a murderer than for the life of an unborn child. What's strange is the same people who push against capital punishment 
support abortion. Isn't that crazy? See how mixed up the mind can be. The devil can make everybody crazy. But here it's very clear that when the king heard what happened about these murderers, he said, you must pay a just price. Now back to the story here. It says he was going to burn their city. He was going to burn their city. And people today uh, build cities. Sometimes we build cities out of our sports. Sometimes we build city out of our investments. Sometimes we build cities out of our home that we're building. Maybe we build uh, cities out of our job that we have, or we build cities out of our families even. We build our cities and We're so excited about our cities that we don't have time for the royal feast. And God said He's going to burn the city down. He's going to burn the city down. Folks, I tell you one thing, right there, that would send shivers through my soul. I don't want God to burn my city down. I've put so much effort into this city. God, don't burn my city down. And God said, uh, look, if if you reject my son because of your city, I'm going to burn your city. Because my son and the gift that he gave is so important. Folks, this is a very serious moment here. Now, this is not only God just speaking to those people. This was a double prophecy. Not only was he telling them that they needed to receive Christ or pay a great judgment, he was also looking ahead to what was going to happen to Israel. In fact, in 70 AD, just about 40 years after this particular time, about four decades, That's exactly what happened to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was burnt. God burnt the city. In 70 AD, those of you who know history, if you ever read Josephus, the great Jewish historian, or read about that, um, Titus Vespasian, the great Roman general, came to Jerusalem. He killed over one million Jewish people, throwing many of their bodies over the wall, they said that so many, there were so many uh, crucified bodies that there was n- almost couldn't find a tree to put another body on because they had cut so many trees down. Here he is, and the only thing that was left was the western wall of the city of Jerusalem. That's why today if you go to Jerusalem and you go there and people go to the Wailing Wall, that's the western wall. That's the only thing standing after Titus came in and invaded. And so here we have Jesus uh, was speaking a word of prophecy, not only to these people saying, don't let God burn down your city. You You need to put your faith in the sun. But he was also referring to what was about ready to happen to Jerusalem. Why would the king destroy their city? Why would he destroy these people? Verse eight, then he said to his servants, because the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. The reason that God burnt their city, the reason that God killed the murderers was because they were not worthy. You'd say, that just sounds terrible. Well, you'd say, well, uh, they were not worthy because they weren't certain uh, nationality or because they weren't a certain color skin or because they weren't a certain gender or because they weren't a certain age group or they were a certain whatever. No, it says right here, they were not worthy because they did not say yes to the dress. The only thing that makes us worthy is saying yes 
to the wedding and being willing to put on the garment as we're going to see here. And so, number four, we find the proclamation, verse 9 and verse 10. Go ye therefore to his servants. Here's the king. Go into the highways and find as many as you can. Bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now, today, you know, sometimes we'll hear of a wedding that was planned and all this great uh, reception afterwards, and maybe they uh, hire a caterer and order all the food, and then some crazy things happen. Maybe the groom runs off, or maybe there's whatever, some situation, and they have all this food, and so I've read some stories where they just call people from the community and say, come here, you know, come to the reception and just be part of it. It's just, uh, we're just feeding the poor today. And so uh, that's basically what happens here. The, the king says, all right, if uh, they don't want to come, they're not worthy of coming. If they don't say yes to the invitation, if they don't say yes to the wedding dress, then they're, they're going to have to bear their own uh, situation. I want you to go out into the highways. That's the nooks and the crannies. I want you to go everywhere. Go everybody and find them and invite them to come to the feast. Now, notice who he invites to come. Notice what it says in verse 10. They found the bad and the good. Now, some people would take that and say, well, there you go. That just shows that in heaven there's going to be bad people and good people. That's not what it's talking about. It's not saying that people who reject Christ go to heaven uh, and uh, they right next to those who say yes to Jesus Christ. It's just talking about from a human standpoint, there are bad people and good people in a community, and yet both aren't saved. There are many people who are bad people who aren't saved, and there are some good people who aren't saved. They're not born again. They haven't, they haven't said yes to the invitation. And so he said, I want you to go to the bad people and the good people. I hear people all the time say, you know, that person over there, I don't think they're a Christian, but they're a good person. That's actually a very scriptural thing to say. There are good people that are still aren't Christians, but if they don't get born again, the Bible said there, as we'll see in a few moments, it's going to be a terrible end to them. And so the whole point is find people who are worthy of being at this wedding. And you say, well, what makes them worthy? Well, we'll see in just a moment. Now we find scene number five, the denunciation. Verses 11 through 14. And the king came in to see the guests. And so here they were. They, uh, many people and good people and bad people and strange people from back in the woods, the, the highways and the byways and the nooks and the crannies. Years ago, when I preached for Pastor Mike Robinette uh, at his church, Bible Baptist there in Ashland, Kentucky, we went out to one of his uh, main families there, and they lived in back in a holler. I said, what in the world is a holler? And uh, these people were uh, coal mine, or had, had coal on their uh, property there and had a little income coming in. They were also farmers. And, but it's just kind of a, I guess it's just kind of a little back area, and they just called it a holler. And well, that's where they were. They were back in the... So these people came from the hollers, and they came from the valleys and the mountains and the villages and the cities. They came from everywhere, bad and good. The one thing they all had in common, they all had wedding dresses on. They all had the garment on of the feast. 
except for one man, verse 11. But there was one man who had not on a wedding garment. Now, the king walks in. This one man's just sitting there, proud as a penny. He's just happy as he can be. But he says, I'm, I'm staying. I'm staying at your royal wedding, and I'm not wearing any fancy outfit. Not wearing it. Now, the king looks at him and uh, says, what in the world? Now, you might say, well, what if the man couldn't afford it? What if the man, you know, just didn't have the time? And I mean, what kind of a, what kind of a God would, would make people pay for a beautiful garment in order to go to the wedding feast? Well, that's the whole deal. You see, the custom of the day was, especially when a king was throwing a wedding, was that he provided the garment. The person didn't have to provide the garment themselves. All they had to come was to come. Now, they would obviously wear a, a nice uh, outfit, but then when they came, they would often be given sort of an outward kind of a garment, a beautiful wedding garment, so that when uh, the, the place would be just beautiful. You know how brides are, especially. You know, if they want to have a formal wedding in the evening, they want lights and they want people to come with ties on. They don't want somebody coming in with flip-flops, you know, and uh, beach shorts and tank top. No, come on now. Respect this wedding. We want you to look nice. And uh, that's the way it is here. It was the king wanted the people to respect the situation. This was a beautiful moment. And he would provide the wedding garment. But this one man said, I ain't wearing it. I'm not wearing it, but I am coming to the feast because I love all that pickled salmon. I love all that hummus there. I love that olive oil and that balsamic vinegar and that delicious bread. And oh, he was just thinking about this feast. He said, but I'm not wearing your garment. <laughs> Verse number 12, and he said unto him, friend, not in anger, but very definitely, friend. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said to Judas, friend. How could Judas be a friend? Folks, he helped make that whole cross a reality. He was the friend of everyone in that he was, uh, he was part of the gospel story. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment. The king talks to the sinner face to face. Sometimes I imagine people somehow think they're just going to slip into heaven and never have to deal with God. Somehow they're just going to somehow come on the come in the backside, you know, kind of like going to Yosemite. There's the main entrances, but then there's kind of some back roads. No back roads into heaven. He's going to meet the king face to face. And the king says, why didn't you wear the clothes I gave you? Why didn't you wear the clothes that I gave you? And the man said, oh, I don't know, my wife, she took it to the cleaner, you know, I don't know what, where it is. He didn't say, my dog, you know, ate it, put a hole in it. No, it says the man was speechless. And that reminds me of Romans 3 and verse 19. The Bible says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Well, I have, you know, we all have these extenuating circumstances. Well, you know, me and God, we extenuating circumstances. Oh, no. 
The fact is, every mouth is going to be stopped. Then verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this wedding, remember, it's still a wedding. The wedding started midday, as I mentioned, but by now it was late. It was dark. They had lit the torches. It was, the feast had gone on into the evening, and so you know how it is uh, if you've ever been like up to the mountains or something and there's no electricity. I mean, once you get outside your little camp, it's dark. I mean, it's seriously dark. And it's spooky dark. And here they said, put him out in the darkness, away from the people, away from the light, away from the warmth, away from the joy, away from all the food. And by the way, let me just point out, did you know that the gospel invitation is an invitation to a party? It's an invitation to a party. It's not an invitation to a jail sale. A lot of people feel like, man, if I become a Christian, it's going to be so bad. I'm going to have to give up so much, folks. God is inviting you to a party. And when people get saved, they say, I never knew life could be so happy. I never knew my marriage could be so happy. I never knew living could be so wonderful, not a, let alone what the eternity holds. It's an invitation to a party. And so here they are. You'd say, well, it all is based on the garment, yes. The man did not wear the garment that the king provided. You'd say, what is the garment? Well, Job talked about it in chapter 29 and verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Every Jew would remember Isaiah 61, the great prophet Isaiah. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Then he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. This man thought he could go into heaven with robes of his own self-righteousness. And Jesus said, I don't think so. It's not going to happen. You must accept the garment of salvation that had been given by God. And then finally, one verse. Jesus closes with the most simple and yet the most profound statement ever uttered by a human mouth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The call goes to many. That just means all. The call of salvation is given to every man. Nobody can stand before God someday and say, I have an excuse because I didn't hear the call. No, the Bible says the call goes to all. The Romans chapter 1 says, even the heavens declare God. Even the heavens declare God. And here in America, nobody can say, I didn't hear the truth. We hear it on the radio, we hear it on the TV, we get flyers in the mail, we hear songs, we drive by churches. Nobody in America could ever say, I didn't get a call. Everybody gets called. But few choose. You'd say, who are the chosen? The chosen are those who choose to say yes, who say yes to the dress. If you say yes to the dress, you're part of the chosen, or as God says, you're part of the elect. Some are indifferent, some are hostile, but many, sadly, will imagine that they can crash the wedding on their own terms. And God said, there's no wedding crashers in heaven. It's not going to happen. If you don't have the garment, you're not going to be there. And it's a garment that God has given. When Jesus died on that cross, He provided the garment for us. That is the blood of His righteousness, and it covers my sin. 
When Jesus died on that cross and when he rose again, three days later, he provided for you and I the garment of righteousness. I'm going to close with a story. I actually heard it on Wednesday night in our class. Dr. Jeremiah quoted it, but actually it's a, it's a story from Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's a, it takes a moment to read it, so listen closely. The title of the story uh, is It's Not in the Book, and it refers to a lady who was a singer, and she's telling the story herself. She was a professional singer, and she just so happened to be invited to sing at a wedding in the Seattle area. As a professional singer, it's not unusual for me to be asked to sing for a wedding, but it was quite unusual to be asked to sing for the wedding of a, wedding of a multimillionaire. I knew the wedding would be picture perfect and was pleased to be able to participate, but when the invitation to reception arrived, I knew it would be something exceptional. The reception was held at the top of the two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. And it was actually even more wonderful than I had imagined. The waiters were wearing black tuxedos, offered luscious hors d'oeuvres, exotic beverages for the most discriminating of tastes. The atmosphere was one of ultimate sophistication. After about an hour of merriment, the bride and the groom approached with a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. A satin ribbon which was draped across the bottom of the stairs was cut, and the announcement was made that the wedding feast was about to begin. The bride and groom ascended the stairs. The guests followed. Oh, what a lavish event to be part of. I was so excited. A gentleman with a lovely bound book greeted us as we reached the top of the stairs. May I have your name, please? Well, I am Ruth Anna Metzger. This is my husband, Roy Metzger, I replied. The gentleman searched the M's. I'm sorry, I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? So I spelled it slowly and clearly. And after searching throughout the book, the gentleman looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name is not here. And without your name in this book, you cannot attend the banquet. <laughs> I told him there must be some mistake. I, I am the singer. I sang for the wedding. The gentleman calmly answered, it really doesn't matter who you are or what you did, without your name in this book, you're not going to come to this banquet. I looked around the room. I thought briefly of running to the groom and trying to plead my case, but with hundreds of guests on the stairs behind us and at every place, I realized the thought of being able to get to them was not going to happen. The gentleman with the book mentioned a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, plead. We followed the waiter past the beautiful decorated tables laden with shrimp smoked salmon, gracefully carved ice sculptures, and adjacent to the banquet area was an orchestra, all the members dressed in dazzling white tuxedos, preparing to fill the room with its glorious music. We were led to the service elevator, stepped in, and the waiter himself pushed G for garage. My husband didn't say a word. We went down the elevator, got into the car, drove several miles, and several miles in silence, Roy reached over gently and put his hand on my arm. Sweetheart, what happened? And then I remembered. 
Honey, when the invitation arrived for the reception, I was so busy, and I honestly, I just didn't bother to return the RSVP. Besides, I figured I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. As we drove on, I began to weep. I was not weeping because I had missed the lavish banquet, the most lavish banquet of my life. I was weeping because suddenly I knew what it will be like someday for people as they stood before the entrance of heaven. People too busy to respond to Christ's invitations and His heavenly banquet. People who assumed that the good things they had done, they sang in the choir, they were in church all the time, would gain them entry into heaven. People who will look for their name in the land's book of life and not find it there. People who simply did not have time to respond to Christ's gracious invitation for their sins and accept them into their hearts. And then I wept again because I realized how grateful I was that many years earlier I had received Christ as my Savior and I was confident that my name, though it was not written in that millionaire's book, it was in the most important book of all, the Lamb's book of life is yours. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.